This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Of course, uh, as you know, over the course of this summer, and this has been something that's been steadily building over time. Uh, I remember it was, uh, when you think about it, about a decade ago, probably over that now, where uh, we were trying to sell Hamilton as the city of waterfalls. Of course, there are plenty and there's uh, plenty of natural beauty up on the escarpment. Uh, within this city, and this was when our times were weren't as good as that they are now. Uh, when this was used to promote the city, and of course, with social media and the internet and such, uh, it has taken off, and that's exactly what's happened uh, to the point now where certainly residents in and around uh, these areas are complaining about uh, overcrowding and lack of parking and people just uh, coming in and, and, and sort of taking over. Uh, a good problem to have, a bad problem to have, I guess it depends on uh, how you look at it and, of course, how we manage it. So as a result of all of this and, of course, the many rope rescues uh, that have been happening, uh, there has been a zero-tolerance policy introduced at Albion Falls. Uh, hikers still coming, uh, despite the weather. Uh, that being said, uh, lots of changes in and around these areas. To talk more about all of this, uh, City Councilor for Ward 6, Tom Jackson, is with us and on the line now. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Scott, this was one morning I woke up, wiped my brow, and said, thank God I did not hear from the fire chief. <laughs> I can imagine. So when did this start to become a problem? As we mentioned earlier, I mean, uh, we've been promoting the city of Waterfalls for it seems like over a decade now. When did yes. it get to the point where it became unmanageable? And Scott, appreciate it. CHML have done, taken su- such a special interest to help with the promotional of safe accessing our waterfalls. So I do appreciate you having me on. I guess about, I'm going to say about uh, four or five years ago, it just seemed to start to take off with uh, the number of people, and I'll speak site-specific to the Buttermilk Albion Falls area along Mount Brow Boulevard. By the way, Scott, not only representing the area for 27 years, but also I used to be in the 80s a resident of Albion Falls Boulevard, which is right above the falls themselves. So I know the area like the back of my hand. And just I'll say the last four or five years uh, with the, I'll call it a new breed, a new era of visitors, explorers to our city, many, many, many families that we have uh, found the destinations coming from primarily the Cambridge, Toronto, Brampton area, through Google Maps, through tourist uh, uh, brochures and that through the websites, all saying check out Hamilton, City of Waterfalls, 70 main waterfalls, etc. So it's become a double-edged sword. And I say that in that it's been wonderful, just wonderful for the image of the City of Hamilton, that it's like the world has suddenly discovered the panoramic, gorgeous, prestigious areas of our city that they want to be part of and spend a Sunday, all the economic spinoffs that come with that. But the double-edged sword has been with this new breed and new era of visitors They just aren't uh, following, if you will, the main trail signage. They just weren't seeing the fact that, you know, steep slope, poison ivy, use at own risk, city will accept no responsibility, etc. Once they see uh, these beaten down paths, and I call them the old goat type trails, that kind of lead to nowhere, but I guess some way, somehow, hordes of people were descending, wanting to get as close to the waterfalls as possible. It's created a new challenge and a, and a new dilemma for us. And so, Scott, it's been building the last few years to the point where, and I've been so reluctant, and with Council's backing, I've been so reluctant 
to implement restrictive physical measures, but we've reached the point where we had to stem the tide of the number of rope rescues, about seven or eight a year, it seemed, the last three, four years at, at Albion alone and Devil's Punch Bowl around the corner, just to stem the tide, get the messaging across, and to educate people. We don't want to necessarily come down hard and fast on people, but it just seemed like people were risk-takers, thrill-seekers, and, you know, wanting to get as close to the water with the selfie as possible. We needed to do the fencing and the no-trespassing signs, at least as interim measures, Scott, to try to get the message across. I haven't been up there since these uh, measures were put in place. What have you done? Is it working? I would say, Scott, I'm positively encouraged, and I do have some hard data for you. Quickly, I was able to get, knowing I was coming on your show this morning. Uh, Over the uh, weekend, we uh, showed that we estimated from Friday afternoon to Sunday night, we had approximately about 3,000 visitors to the Albion Falls, Red Hill Valley, Buttermilk Falls area alone. Six tickets uh, for no trespassing were issued by our bylaw officers. I happened to drive by a few times on Saturday, saw our bylaw officers around the top of the falls, and it was great to see as well a huge component of education. I watched them as families were coming, parking across the road on Arbor Road, and they were, as they were trying to get past them, saying, don't go past. If you're going to, you're going to be ticketed, and directing people up to the lookout platforms in the north parking lot, which I got built about 12 years ago at that time for half a million dollars, directing people to the Bruce Trail, staying on the main trail. So six tickets issued this past weekend to about 3,000 visitors, but the presence of bylaw officers. I'm positively, cautiously encouraged, Scott, because I even watch people going near the signs, reading the signs of no trespassing can be fined up to 10 grand potentially, and noticing many people taking a pause and deciding, you know what, uh, let's go up the sidewalk here onto the main trail and stay safely away from the dangerous areas. What about complaints? Have you received any complaints about the, the, the fences or the signage or what people may interpret as an intrusion? Well, it's interesting, Scott, you say that. And on Saturday, I was at a wonderful block party in my old neighborhood, organized by wonderful volunteers, families that lived there primarily, uh, Bill and Heather Yates. And I'll say about a good couple of hundred people came out. Now, this was a neighborhood party, but right above the falls. And again, having been a former resident of that neighborhood, um, and many of them still generational families there, mom and dad still there, the kids that bought mom and dad's homes. And so the flip side, of course, is Tom... It's a shame it's unfortunately come to this because, Tom, we knew where to go, where not to go safely at the falls. It's unfortunate. We get the fact that, you know, there's a corporate interest here. And, Scott, on behalf of taxpayers across the city, there's a corporate interest here. And council and I are trying to protect as well. But, yes, there was a flip side argument saying it's unfortunate it's reached this point of the six foot black chain link fencing with the no trespassing signs. However, I told the people why, because of mostly visitors from out of town, we need to get the safe messaging across. And Scott, also, I want you to know, I've had, I've called it an Albion Falls focus team since last August. I've had a multi-departmental, multi-agency representative at the table. This isn't me driving it. It's been all in consultation. I've had Greg Lenko, who I believe has been on your show in the past, Mm -hmm. uh, from the Escarpment Project team. I've had his input. I've met with him before going down this road. 
the Hamilton Conservation Authority has been wonderful, Bruce Trail. So along with our various departments and our Parks Department Manager, Kara Bunn, who has taken the tremendous lead on implementing these measures with the consensus of everyone, everyone by and large, I'm not saying they've agreed with every single, it's been unanimous on every single measure, but by and large, both short-term and long-term, people have been generally supportive of doing this in the interim. But Scott, I'm committed, like I did 12 years ago with the Lookout platforms, I'm committed and I've instructed staff to get a preliminary submission in to the Hamilton Future Fund this fall for their October deadline. It's going to cost an estimated a million dollars if we can properly build a safe pathway, handrails, staircase, something from the south side, which is the Mud Road Lover's Leap side, down to close to the water. It's obvious to me people love the excitement of being near this natural area, but darn it all, we need some time before we can uh, implement and construct, if we can safely, that long-term measure. Uh, What do you say to those, and I'm getting these, Tom, uh, on social media today, that the wrong people are paying the price? Rather than putting up all of this and, and fining people for for going where they're not supposed to go. What about just making the people pay that are causing the problems? So interesting on that point, Scott, our own fire chief, Dave Cunliffe, this spring at a standing committee at council gave a public information report. And he himself at that time, and still does to my knowledge, recommended against a rope rescue uh, fees. His main concern was primarily if somebody's in distress if there's this knowledge that, you know, they're going to be charged whatever X amount of dollars, it may be a deterrent to them from calling. That was his professional recommendation. So we decided instead to go with the heavy. Once you even think of now trespassing in an area you shouldn't be, you, not the taxpayers, you who are violating the, the new regulations, you will now be charged and fined. And again, Scott, I've got a corporate interest here, which obviously can't be talked about to a large degree, but there's a corporate interest here as well that we needed to protect in light of some, you know, the ultimate sadness of the tragedy a month ago, the gentleman from Toronto last year, the family man that was uh, sadly on, I believe, on a Sunday afternoon, uh, fell to his death, and uh, Devil's Punch Bowl uh, last year as well, having a, a fatality, along with the number of rope rescues, Scott. I never wanted to legislate behavior. In fact, your radio program uh, through interviews have interviewed me many a time in the last two, three summers. I was loath and so reluctant to go down a path of legislating behavior. But, Scott, it was obvious to me that the messaging of going and staying on the main trail and the safe pathways was not getting across. And you can call them risk takers, thrill seekers, adventurous, whatever. But uh, we needed to do something at this time until we can provide something like Niagara Falls, the gorge that can get people closer to the falls. Greg Greg Lenko and I are going to work together on that kind of thing. uh, Zipline is another possible option. So there's an excitement in the air of people wanting to come to Hamilton, be part of our gorgeous, prestigious areas. But unfortunately, Scott, at this time, I think it was, and I was thrilled that council unanimously supported this interim measure. And I guess, Tom, it, it, we just have to face the reality of what's happened and that Hamilton is growing. People are coming to see these, and we're sort of between two points here, the old Albion Falls and what it will need to become in order to sustain these, these visitors. 
Absolutely. Scott, I love the fact that we all as Hamiltonians or those who have lived, worked, played here for most of our lives, we all know that this city wasn't just steel town and it was just sad and disgusting people driving over the Skyway, pointing at Hamilton, going, oh, look at that dirty uh, place. Who'd ever want to live there? People from outside. And now it's like a transformation of our image, the waterfalls, the trails, the escarpment, our library system is all part of that. I'm thrilled by it. It's now a destination place to come. But unfortunately, we've just got these. And again, it's a minority. But again, I've got to, uh, I've got to do something here in the interim with the longer term plan to ensure that people are enjoying the safe access of everything that Hamilton has to offer. By the way, in the last three months, uh, from a further enforcement ticketing standpoint, Scott, I just got word in that since mid-April to now, people, many visitors, were parking illegally along Mountain Brow Boulevard, creating huge problems, congestion, unsafe uh, access in and out of the three main parking lots. Over a 1,000 parking tickets from mid-April to now have been issued as well because even paramedics and the fire trucks at times we're having difficulty getting to a rope rescue. So that's been a major area of uh, getting rid of illegal parking as well. Uh, you talked about how obviously uh, meetings have to be held and discussion as to what this is going to become. How much of a draw, how much of a boon has this been for the city and what does the future hold when it comes to these areas? I think it's positive, Scott. And again, we're not alone. We're working so collaboratively now, with uh, more so than ever, with the Conservation Authority. You know they've had their issues over the years with the Webster Twos and Spencer Gorge areas. Uh, in fact, the Conservation Authority, ironically, I believe a couple of years ago, removed an old staircase from the uh, Webster Falls area for whatever liability reasons that they had at the time. Maybe it was an old-fashioned type of stairway that needed to be properly modernized or replaced, but they haven't done that. So, Scott, I want to find ways to continue to attract people to our city, not only for citizens of our city that don't have the means to get up to Muskoka to a, to a cottage, that want to stay home, want to explore every aspect, the parks, the recreational, social recreational areas, uh, the, the stairs that people enjoy for physical activity. I want to be part of that continued promotion. I think we just got a bit swamped and overwhelmed by the sheer volume of numbers, the increased popularity that I think, for I'll speak for myself, caught me and a number of us off guard and that led to a new set of challenges, but I'm committed to try to overcome those challenges, Scott. City Councillor for Ward 6, Tom Jackson, has been with us, of course, discussing uh, Albion Falls and uh, the various falls and what needs to be done to, of course, take the next step and uh, bringing a safer, experiences to, uh, safer experience to everyone involved. Tom, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, Bank of Canada raised its uh, interest rates a quarter of a point. Now the Canadian dollar has moved up to 80 cents this morning. First time that has happened since 2015. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it. Uh, The raise in interest rates, now a Canadian dollar at 80 cents. Uh, Are we back on track? Is this a sign that the Canadian economy is uh, about to take off? 
I think it's a uh, a positive sign. I've I've always said to to my students over the years, and this may cause real purist uh, economists to tear out their hair, but I think it's a an accurate insight. Is is that economies that are performing strongly experience as a generic general insight experience appreciating currencies. I'll give you a quick example. In the 80s and 90s, I traveled regularly to Germany when it used to have the Deutschmark. And it used to irritate me, irritate me no end. Every time I went the next time, the, the Deutschmark had appreciated again. Why? Because Germany went from strength to strength to strength. And the currency reflects, you could think of it as sort of a thermometer, a measure of the overall economic dynamism, competitiveness, health of that country. I, throughout the uh, 90s and, and last 25 years, I've taught a lot in developing countries, Romania, uh, Ukraine, Argentina. And what were the currencies doing in these uh, current, uh, countries? They were constantly going down. Why? Because their economies were in very bad shape. A lot of corruption in these countries, poor economic growth, high unemployment, chronic government deficits. How did the markets respond? Depreciate the currency. So as a gross generalization, recognizing some economists may be tearing out their hair when I say this, an appreciating currency going up is the market is saying there's, this is good news, that there's good things happening in that country. And when a currency is going down, it doesn't mean that the economy is finished. It's just saying that relative to other economies, it's not doing so well. So right now, the Canadian dollar is doing well, uh, partly because the growth is very strong. We're seeing it in all the economic metrics that the Bank of Canada has quoted. And on top of that, the Bank of Canada just put up the interest rate. And there's a belief by many that they're going to increase it again. And this is attractive to foreign investors, because what that says is if they come to Canada, they can get a bigger return on their investment. So that causes people to uh, create that creates more demand for the Canadian dollar and that puts pressure on it to go up so why the increase now is this just about the Canadian economy what factor does the US play in all of this well that's a, uh, I'm, I'm, I am simplifying okay there's there's a million gazillion variables that go in but we don't have to make it that complex there's typically uh, two or three variables for Canada let's just leave it to Canada and not deal with 200 countries around the world one relationship that every investor looks at, both inside Canada and outside, is how is the Canadian economy doing against the U.S. economy? How is the Canadian dollar doing against the U.S. dollar? And right now the U.S. dollar is softening for a whole bunch of reasons I won't get into, but it relates around Trump's legislative agenda not going forward. And so if the, Canadian, if the U.S. dollar is weakening because all currencies are always quoted in relation to another currency, think of it as like a light switch. The light is on or it's off. Okay, so the Canadian dollar is either going up against the American dollar or it's going down or it's flatline. So right now, because the U.S. dollar is depreciating a little bit, that's putting upward pressure on the Canadian dollar, which is reinforced by the increased interest rates and reinforced by the very strong economic numbers, growth numbers coming out of the Canadian economy. You talked about the United States. Uh, obviously, things looked positive there after the election of Trump. Uh, business thought things were going to move forward. Obviously, um, that has stalled somewhat. What if the U.S. starts to strengthen? How will that affect us? 
again, it's always in relation to these other variables, but I, I, mean, I don't want to give you the idea that the Canadian dollar can only, only go down if the U.S. dollar goes up. Certainly if the U.S. dollar goes up, uh, sometimes, again, depending on what's going on here, uh, sometimes that can actually um, put influence on the Canadian dollar to also go up. I mean, I know that sounds contradictory, but I would say the, fu- the fundamental thing is there's two things to really watch. What's the Bank of Canada doing? When rates go up, the market's like that. It puts upward pressure on the dollar because they can get a bigger return on their dollar when they come here. When they buy, convert U.S. dollars to Canadian dollars and come here, if the bank puts its rate up, that increases the overall rate of return in the economy. And then the second thing is how strong is the Canadian economy doing? If it's doing very well, then it's going to, again, produce more opportunities for investors. So I think that I'm not suggesting, by the way, we're going to go to 90 uh, cents or a par. I don't believe that. In fact, the long-term value of the Canadian dollar, a lot of economists have crunched the numbers, and they think that the true value, because, you know, the, the market can bounce around just like it can in real estate. What's the true value of your house? Well, you know, sometimes the market price can be a little bit above, sometimes it can be a little bit below, but there are techniques they can use to measure, and right now the Canadian dollar, its, quote, underlying value is somewhere in the low 80s. So that's its, quote, true uh, value. To go beyond that is not, it's not, um, it, it's overvalued. <laughs> you know, when the oil prices went through the roof four or five years ago, that pulled the Canadian dollars, we all know. At one point, it took it up to par, mm-hmm. but it was artificially overvalued because the high oil prices were bringing in all kinds of foreign money into Canada. 2008 recession, uh, we all know what happened then, uh, and, and many have said since then it, it, it's kind of been the lost decade. Is that behind us now? Um, I would think so. Uh, I mean, I was not as pessimistic about the Canadian economy. I mean, I've had the great fortune in my life to travel around the world to many, many countries. And I don't just mean the obvious ones, you know, going to Paris or London. I've been to an awful lot of developing countries in South America, in Asia, and in Europe. And I'm talking Eastern Europe, the former communist countries. And, and I have said over and over, Canada is a paradise. That's why people line up. Something I've observed in developing mm. countries, meaning not Western Europe countries. And the lineups are the longest to emigrate outside of two embassies in every country I've ever been to, Canada and the United States. Why? And I'm, when I say lineups, I mean, they start at 6 o'clock in the morning in Romania, and they go four, five, six blocks. Why around the world do people want to come to Canada and the United States? Well, it's seen as paradise. It's seen as Mecca. It really is. It's seen as a place where you can have greater prosperity, and you have more opportunities, and it's safer. Uh, and it's a better place to raise your children than just about anywhere else. And so last decade, I always found, was a bit a bit uh, over the top. <laughs> we weren't doing as well, perhaps, as we have in other times. But it's always been an extraordinarily wealthy country. People don't realize this. Some people have actually disagreed with me. When you uh, compare and take the uh, German currency, uh, the, uh, the German income, uh, income per capita, average income per capita, and convert it into a common currency so we can compare. And you convert Canadian average income from Saskan into, into U.S. dollars and convert German income. We are just about spot on equal to the Germans. Well, they're the wealthiest country in all of Europe, and Europe is one of the wealthiest, well, one of the two wealthiest regions in the entire world, which is another way of saying Canada is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, typically top 10 
In other words, average, we're not talking the rich people, average income of the average Canadian. And lots of Canadians listening may say, well, gee whiz, I don't feel rich. I have a good answer for you. Take a trip to Romania. Hmm. Take a trip to Argentina. Go to Venezuela. Yeah. You know, go to, go to uh, China, where the average income is $6,000 per person per year. And, and China's booming, by the way. So my point is, we're, we're a very extraordinarily affluent country. Will this continue? How will it, can it fall just as fast as it's going up? Um, I mean, any country can go into Let me just make a quick distinction, and please forgive me if people think I'm getting a little too academic, but there's two kinds of change. There's cyclical change, cycle, you know, the business cycle. You know, the economy mm-hmm. goes through a period of, you know, two, three years of great growth, and then it goes into a recession. So that's cyclical change. And nobody has abolished the business cycle. No country in the world has abolished going into recession. So every country experiences growth followed by recession and so forth. And then there's structural change, which is another word for permanent change. And so I'm not saying that Canada won't go into a recession in two or three years now or the states or anybody else. They will, and another recession will come eventually. But in terms of the underlying structural factors that affect the long-term performance of a country, I have long maintained that uh, Canada has very strong fundamentals. And, and that sounds like a big fancy word. Hey, hey, we have one of the highest levels of education in the world. That's really important in the modern knowledge-based digital economy that your, your workers are highly educated. But do Canadians want to compare themselves to other countries who many of them have never been to, or do they want to compare themselves to way, the way they had it five years ago, 10 yeah, years ago, 15 to 20 years ago? nail on the head. I mean, people always want more, not less, right? And, and I've actually had people say to me, don't talk to me about Romania. I don't live in Romania. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and they say, you know, I can remember the good old days. Well, when you go back and look at the good old days, and I have looked at the stats from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, because, of course, that's the period of my life. And uh, I think there's a lot of... Um, uh, nostalgia going on and uh, that is maybe not quite as accurate. I mean, I, I was at the Bank of Montreal in 1981 when interest rates peaked at 20%, hmm. and I don't hear anybody saying, oh, gee, well, those were the good old days back then. I can remember in the late 70s when inflation was 10, then 12, then 14%, and I don't think those were the good old days. So, you know, we're doing... No country is perfect, but, you know, when you look at the fundamentals, our unemployment is going down steadily. And uh, we have balanced growth. We don't have the inequalities uh, that the United States uh, faces, uh, you know, in terms of our economic growth. So, uh, again, I I think that, um, and we manage, you know, it's a very, very safe country in in every dimension, whether we're talking, uh, you know, health or or crime and so forth. So I'm not trying to paint, you know, a Pollyanna approach. I'm just simply saying, and I have made the I've had the choice. I was offered a green card to stay in the States when I was on sabbatical. And I made the decision to come back because much as I like visiting the States and living there for sabbatical, I, I, I came to the conclusion that uh, Canada all in is a better place to, to live in and raise one's family than even in the States, which is a very, very affluent and successful country. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, lots will say loss of jobs, uh, shrinking middle class. Where is the growth in the next decade for Canada? That's an excellent question. Um, and uh, I think that there's, again, there's a fair amount of misunderstanding going on. We are losing jobs in some areas, and people, of course, always focus on the bad news, not the good news. The, the future is going to be in services. You know, the, uh, if you go back over 100 years ago, something like 90% of the population worked in agriculture. Everybody was a farmer. And today, less than 
2% work in agriculture. Then you go back to the, the, the middle of the 20th century, and very large numbers of people worked in manufacturing, making things. And that number is down to, I believe it's down to about 12%. I mean, almost everybody now works in the services. And I don't just mean Tim Hortons or, or hotels when I say services. I'm in the services economy and education. Uh, the largest employer in all of Canada is called the healthcare sector, and they employ two and a half million Canadians, more than any other sector bar none. You're in the broadcasting, which is part of the services sector, financial services, banking, uh, you know, uh, real estate. Uh, all of these are the services sector, and we have a very sophisticated, advanced service economy. In fact, that's the one area where our exports are really doing well. People think you can't export services, but you can. You can send bankers over to Europe. I go to China every year to teach, and I am classified as export of education services by StatsCan. So when we think of service jobs, we should move beyond the discussion of a livable minimum wage and, as you said, working behind a counter somewhere. I, I certainly believe that. I mean, I also believe that, uh, you know, and I know I'm I'm in the business, so it sounds self-interested, but uh, 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 people have to look at education as not something that they finish when they graduate from college or university or high school. Hmm. They've got to be doing, you know, that cliche, lifelong learning Mm -hmm. and constantly upgrading the skill sets. And it's just like tuning up your car and investing in your car or renovating your house. It's actually a better analogy. And you've got to keep, you know, taking courses from time to time to upgrade your skill sets. Uh, just like you upgrade your, and renovate your house as things, parts of your house wear out and become obsolete. And, uh, and I think that that's what we have to do. We have to accept that, that that's going to be part of our life in the future. Can we expect growth over the next decade to be slow and steady? Would that be accurate? And yes. obviously you can't predict these things. But... Well, I, I don't. Sadly and unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be going back to the growth of the 60s of 4 and 5 percent or even the 3 to 4 percent of the 80s and the Reagan years and the Clinton years of the 90s. Uh, but I think it will, because this is, the slowdown has gone on everywhere, and a lot of people think, and I'm one of them, it's because of the aging that's going on not just in Canada, but in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere. Um, and so this is dragging down uh, growth. But it's going to be, as you put, slow but steady. And we have lots of safety nets in Canada. The biggest safety net of all, of course, is health care. In the States, most health care plans are tied to your job. You lose your job, you lose your health care. That doesn't happen in Canada. And, and as I said, we've got, you know, we've got EI and we've got retraining programs and so forth and, and funds and, uh, for go, to go to back to school, to university or college. So I think that uh, we don't have the same, uh, shall we say, fears or risks that people face in the United States where it, it can be much more problematic uh, when, you, when you do lose your job. Can't let you go, Ian, without asking you uh, for an update on Sears. Uh, obviously now uh, we're hearing uh, people losing pensions, this yep. sort of thing, yep. and, and just turning into a, a PR nightmare as well as it the is. economic nightmare that, that Sears is. What's the future? Where is this going? I think the latest very bad news, and I understand why people are so upset, is just one more nail in the coffin, um, and I don't wish it. I mean, as someone with fond nostalgic memories, my mother dressed myself and my brothers at Sears every spring and fall throughout the 60s, but I, I, I think it's very dire. I think it's very, the future is very dark. I think they've lost their way. Uh, the, the best test of all, very quickly, walk into any Sears store and look at the average age of the people. Hmm. Do you see any young people in there? And I'm not a young person, as I'm sure you know. 
and I just don't see young people in there. And if you don't have young people, they're they're your future customers. And and I don't think that that Sears has been able to uh, connect with the millennials. And I think that that's really is that like, the lesson to be learned in all of this? Is they just didn't modernize? They didn't modernize. They didn't renew their image. They didn't renew their brand. They didn't stay in touch with their consumers. They just rode it out with the their older consumers and and rode off into the sunset with them. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A couple of interesting, um, couple of interesting uh, articles that uh, I came across uh, this morning in, in regard to parenting. Uh, one was in the CBC, The Lost Art of Play, No Resilience Without Risk, says researchers. Parents are too cautious, experts say, and it's harming our kids. Another one out of McLean's magazine, uh, The Collapse of Parenting and why it's time for the parents to grow up. Uh, and, you know, we're always quick to pick on the kids. I think that's just what has been called the generation gap over the years. Now uh, the generation gap and everybody, every uh, every segment of the population seems to have a name. Uh, we're very quick to uh, cut up millennials. Uh, some are very quick to point out uh their strengths, or sorry, their weaknesses as opposed to their strengths. But what I, I find ironic in, in this discussion is that how did the millennials get to where they are? Because theoretically, they're our kids. So where is the parent that's raising these kids and creating the generation that we have? And you can't just blame it on technology because you know nothing about it. Learn something about it. Be involved with your kid's life. It's, it could be something as simple as that. Are we playing it too safe with our kids? Let's bring in Maureen Dennis. She is the mother of four, parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca. And Maureen is with us now. Hello, Maureen. How are you today? Great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It seems like we are having a discussion, uh, these discussions a lot lately. Uh, have millennials become a scapegoat for the older generation? You know what it is? It's, I think I have this conversation about three times a week now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it goes from, you know, the millennials who are entering the workplace to the, you know, the crop of new students that will be attending university this fall to, you know, my son who's heading to high school or all the way down to, you know, um, my five-year-old and, and toddlers and, and younger. And younger. It's, um, it's an interesting sort of time right now as a parent. Is the generation gap wider now than it's ever been? You know what? I think everybody has said this about the generation um, upcoming, right? So it's, there is a generation gap. There is different things in each generation that affect their work ethic and how they view the world. And, um, you know, technology plays into it, but there's always been different aspects um, of each generation. Um, you know, the generation that lived through the war is going to certainly have a way different perspective than our kids would now. Didn't we raise the millennials, though? How, how, how can we sort of just wash our hands of it and go, I don't know what, I don't know what the hell happened to them? Um, yeah, no, I think that, you know, I, I, there's so many studies and there's so many fingers to be pointed. The reality is, is that we have a generation now that were raised with um, participation ribbons for gold stars for essentially showing up. Mm. And so we have to deal with that within the workplace and within our own day-to-day lives. Um, and it is, it is how we as a you know, um, greater community raise these kids. 
But we're also looking at the next generation of kids be- past the millennials. I'm not sure what their name is. My kids, I call them. Uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that I think we're aware of that. So now it's even more confusing. So are you as authoritative as your parents were when your parents said what to do? You do it. You don't ask. You, know, you, don't, you don't question them. You weren't asked. You were told what to do. Um, I think that's one of the interesting things that the articles bring up is that the command has now been re- replaced with a question, hmm. right? So, yeah. you know, I re- eat I- three more bites is, could you eat three more bites? I was like, oh, that's really interesting, because it has changed. I'm not, you know what I mean? If you so as opposed, to sitting, as opposed to sitting down at the table with your kid and saying, no, finish your broccoli, and you don't get to move and, or, and do anything else until you finish your broccoli, it's like, well, if you just have three more bites, we'll let you go. It's, all, it's like we're almost teaching them to negotiate. Well, it's true, but it's asking them... Like it, I, what I found really interesting is like I'm I am totally guilty of doing the three more bites thing too. Um, you got to pick your battles, but on the same token, you know it's I don't say could you could you do three more bites because the question it's not up to them to say oh could I I'm saying I'm requesting of you right now to finish three more bites before you can leave the table right so that that's where I just found the article interesting that it does those little things of giving the power over to the child. Um, and I have I have good friends that we, we fundamentally disagree on who and how should that communication between parent and child should be. You know, we choose to be um, we listen to our kids, but we we will have the final decision. And I don't need to explain why to my kids that that's what we've decided. Moving on. Why do we not realize that this is or has been a part of the change, that this is a result of the change? You know, and I can think of a scenario with someone I know. Uh, you know, somebody middle-aged and, and has young teenagers and such and tells the story about, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I, my old man never drove me to hockey. My old man made me walk to hockey at 6 o'clock in the morning. He, he said I'd put my equipment on in order to walk just to stay warmer and because <laughs> he was in bed and he worked so long and hard and whatever. And when I look back, I saw my dad looking out the window at me, and that bum never drove me. And then fast forwards to, you know, he's got his own business. He's done yeah. very well for himself. He's very mm-hmm. disciplined, and he gives his kids lots and then calls them lazy arses. So how come we can't realize that? The lessons that we were taught also have to be taught to our kids, even if it comes from a different paradigm. Oh, absolutely. We, you know, it comes from fear and guilt is where it comes from, right? So we think we live in a very different time where our kids are somehow more risk than we were or previous generations were. And so the, you know, I don't think, I don't think there was ever such thing as a helicopter parent back in the day. Hmm. So, or even the idea of it. I mean, you know, and you see a lot of articles, especially around summertime, going, how do you give your kids that 70s or 80s summer? Well, how do you do it? You let your kids go and play and have some freedom. Now, how do you do that? You give them the tools to be able to make decisions that are going to keep them safe. So if you have totally helicoptered your parent or your parent, your child, I wouldn't suggest that you then say, yeah, sure, go to the park on your own. You have to go back and make sure that those that your children have the tools and have the street smarts to be able to function independently. What are those tools? What are those tools? Give us an example. Well, you know, it's one of those things where you say, okay, um, they need you to be able to tell time, for example. They need to know, you wouldn't believe how many kids are in the car and they're looking at phones and tablets or movies or things and they don't actually even know their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So they have to know what is around them. 
they also have to be, you know, just aware of who's around them and what's going on. Because, again, if their parents have always been looking out for them, you're not kind of like watching who those people are around you. And you know that spidey sense when you're like, hmm, that guy's maybe a little creepy. Like, those are the things that you have to give your children the opportunity to experience in order to have those street smarts. Because they're dependent on their parents. They're even dependent on their parents for, you know, navigating their friendship. I mean, you've just got to let them have that. If if you're not ready to send them to the park on their own, go to the park, but absolutely stay out of the social scene. Let the kids, I don't care if it's a toddler, you know, fighting over a sand toy, let them sort it out. Take a breath. I'm always about like having this pause in parenting from the day you bring your child home. Take a breath, take a pause before you intervene. Give them the chance to figure it out. And that's where sometimes, yes, absolutely, they're going to make a poor decision. <laughs> that is what we call it. Maybe not that, you know, you didn't do anything bad, but maybe you made a poor decision. And when you make a poor decision, you then have a lesson. You learn something. And if you make that poor decision again, well, then we're going to have, a, uh, you know, another conversation. But it's really, really hard to let your kids fail. But we have to do it. It's the only way you learn. Take an, take, uh, an issue like bullying. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, this is something that, that's in the forefront lately. Uh, it's something that most schools and school boards uh, try to keep a handle on. Um, and we've certainly tried to promote respect and, and what is bullying and what isn't bullying. Yet many in the old days would say, let the kids just fight it out on the playground. They'll figure it out. So where's the balance there? You know, the balance is, again, it's, it's that the kids... You need to be able to understand and have some practice in social settings. So it's really difficult to, um, once you get into sort of those older age groups, I'd say, you know, maybe nine plus, where you are dealing with the kids at school, the kids in your neighborhood and any sports or thing, other activities that you do, but you're also adding in social media into that play. So there's really no break with it. Um, but having... Though having the experience on how to deal with social settings and without your parents dealing with it, I think a lot of it comes down to there, there's there's so many busy parents getting involved in the drama of nine year olds and, and fifteen. You know, you've got to have those conversations with your kids and give them the tools again to be able to have those conversations with their friends. Now, when you get into a, a full on bullying situation where either your child is the victim or could be that the bullies have parents too, um, you know, to have that, you really have to look at your your own situation of what's going on but also look at you know what is the what is at the core of this because it's not always just um one-sided right what about uh uh, you know let's look at the other end of this stick helicopter parent parenting watching too much as opposed to being too busy, too time-consumed to watch, easier to let them sit down and just play with a unit and, and, and or device of some sort and not parenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, are we blaming others or is it we just don't have the time to parent? Well, the fear piece is really the helicopter parent, and then the guilt comes in on, I don't know, I guess it doesn't really have a title, but or maybe I'm not aware, but let's say that, you know, quote-unquote, um, lazy parenting or or... It's easier to just let them do it. You do have to pick your battles. But I think what happens is is that a lot of parents, both parents work. It's um, You only have a few hours a day with your kids. 
And it's really not what you want to have to do is argue with your kids or be nag or, you know, be that person. You want to have fun with them. You want to create good memories. You want to be their buddy. Um, but what ends up happening is, is that the child is then, you know, ruling the roost mm-hmm. and they are the ones who are sitting on the iPod um, or that, you know, and the, the parents have the best intentions. They love their kids so much, but you have to, it's hard to say no, it really is, but they actually respect it more. It's, it, it's shocking, but the kids respond to it and it actually makes parenting easier. But there seems to be almost two camps here. There's the ones that are so-called helicoptering, and then there's the ones that have no idea what the kids are even up to. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, and then you've got all the other parents standing around shaming and judging everyone. So, <laughs> so are we letting kids away with too much? What's the difference between letting them go and, and you know, in free range, do whatever they're doing, as opposed to helicoptering? I mean... Well, I think what you're looking at is, it's not essentially like, are you helicoptering? Are you lazy? Are you, are you what as a parent? I think it's where that line is as far as, you know, who is actually calling the shots in your house? Is it your kids or is it the parents? And that's where I think you're going, you see more of those commonalities. So whether the, you know, whether the helicopter parent is, a couple of examples that the articles brought up, which I think really do, you know, bring it to light in in a simple way for people to understand would be like, if you look at sleep, food, and say your family plan, three simple things you deal with every day, right? And if, if your child is dictating where they're sleeping, when they're sleeping, who they're sleeping with, um, all of those sorts of things, and you can't say it's bedtime, you know, um, another friend of mine, she has six kids. Uh, she says, you know, our, our bedtime story is called darkness. She mm. turns off the light <laughs> and says good night. And that's end of story, right? There is no up, up and up again or I need this. I need like it's, it is bedtime. Same thing with, with food. I mean, if you are um, packing, you know, a cooler full of snacks to take with you on a half an hour drive that your child can't. Um, make it that far, or that is part of your parenting crutch is to just keep throwing snacks and, and you know, food at your child. Um, it sounds crazy, but it happens. It totally happens. And then with plans, I mean, all the time, I all this summer, I've, I've talked to parents and they said, you know, I've said, hey, like all four of our kids ski and sail. And they're like, that's amazing. How did you get them to ski and sail? Well, I signed them up. <laughs> and they will, well, oh, I got to, I got to ask my kids if they'd be interested. I said, no, 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 this doesn't need to be asking. Like, obviously, we're, you know, we as a family decided that that's what it is, but mm-hmm. our kids are not dictating what our plans are going to be. They'll have, in, they'll have you know, um, some uh, suggestions about what they would like to do when we go on holiday, but, you know, and they'll have some input into it. But the final decisions are made by my husband and I. And so when you look at those sorts of things, it is definitely um, a question to look at as a parent and say, you know, look at all the decisions that are being made in the day. Who's making them? And maybe some a shift needs to go a little bit closer to the parent side than the child. Has there been a collapse in parenting, as this article may suggest? I don't know if it's a collapse in parenting. That's certainly a you know a headline that was going to definitely make it. What is it? Almost the most read article on uh, McLean's. Mm-hmm. Um, parenting always has very divisive, diverse topics that get people up in arms. And I think that is the change in parenting right now is that there is so much shaming and judgment and there's very little support of different kinds of parenting styles. And the village is 
gone. You really have to build your own village in order to make those confident decisions. And there are always parents who are going to um, have a similar style to you. And those are the people that, you know, you need to sort of connect with and, and, and um, help each other with. Because if you're working, if you're trying to uh, build a relationship with someone with a fundamentally different parenting style, you have to learn to agree to disagree or it's going to, it's going to be um, pretty bad. The uh, collapse of parenting is, is that kind of coming to light, right? Because there's so many different styles and people just don't agree anymore. There's not one way to raise a child. And they talk about the dinner table and how that's an important time to get everybody together. Uh, I can think of friends who have recently said to me, and, and, you know, we try to use the dinner table at our place to, you know, to chat about pretty much anything. Uh, but I've heard parents say, my kids don't, well, when we chat about these sorts of things, they say, my kids don't talk to me. How do you address that? How do you answer that question? Well, I, I think you'd be shocked at how many people don't have dinner time together. Um, a lot of families I know, they feed their kids much earlier. Um, they put the kids to bed or, or at least, you know, um, the kids have been fed and they and their partners have uh, their dinner later. And I think that you know, that that is a missed opportunity to have that communication. So many social things come through sharing a meal together from understanding your etiquette at the table to those types of conversations. And it's, it's, you know, there's tons of lists of questions online that can give you a better answer. So instead of saying, you know, how was your day? You can say, like, what was the best part of your day? Right? So it's really challenging them and have everybody at the table say what the best part of their day was. Um, people, there's, there's all kinds of ways of, of um, naming it. There's like roses and thorns. What was the best part? What was the worst part of your day? Those sorts of things. And when you start to see it, that's what starts the conversations, right? Um, and with four kids, we also also have a lot of conversations about, you know, um, supporting each other as siblings and as a family, what we're doing to help each other out and what's going on in people's lot, different individual lives. I have to ask you one comment on uh, a listener that's emailed us. Uh, says, that's why a little bit of religious doctrine instilled in young kids is still needed to establish a cornerstone of respect and a particular, particularly a conscience. Is that a scapegoat? You know, if, if, if you can't parent them, you put the fear of God in them? <laughs> That would certainly not be my suggestion. Um, I think what it does is it gives you a little bit of a playbook. It gives you some rules in case you don't, um, you're not sure where to go. That could be different for everyone. Um, it's certainly not um, what our family's basis is in. Um, but I see where they're going with it. It's that they, you know, there are some rules and some authority involved that is kind of gives them gives parents that guidance so in some cases that might be where you get some guidance in in how to um you know take some control back but there are certainly lots of other different ways that other people may be more comfortable with maureen dennis has been with us mother of four parenting expert and founder of wewelcome.ca maureen as always thanks for the time much appreciated my pleasure the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml